Good morning. It's good to see you. I hope that you don't feel as sleepy as I look. <laughs> Jet lag is always a fun challenge. And there's one more guest that I want to introduce to you. James Fu, stand up, my brother. He is went with me to Israel 22 years ago, and we were roommates in Israel back when neither of us knew anything about Israel, and now we're both consummate experts. So, <laughs> but it's so great to see you and introduce to us your wife who's with you. Wonderful. James is pastoring up in Norm Norman, Oklahoma now, and so we need to... Okay, retired from hospice chaplaincy. Well, thank you for your ministry and for being my friend for so long. And James also sings. So lead us in the doxology, would you? Let's all sing the doxology. <laughs> I really meant it, but. <clears throat> yeah, well, it was good being your friend for a while. You know, having teachers, great teachers in your life is such a blessing. And when you know them personally, like we had the privilege of knowing Dr. Toussaint for so, so long, um, it means so much, except when they teach something that is wrong. <laughs> I will never forget, I was in this class, sitting you know, just a few rows back right here, Kathy and I and our girls, and Dr. Toussaint shocked me by saying something that I just disagreed with. And I just, it stunned me. It's almost like the man had unleashed heresy. I mean, it wasn't heresy, but it was like, you know, if you say anything I don't agree with, it's just, how do I deal with that? Seriously. And when, you, when there's a teacher that you respect so much and you think, oh, they just said something wrong, how do you, how do you deal with it? And... After the shock of his words and my initial rejection of his words, and that's important to note, my initial reaction was to reject what he said. I paused and I thought, well, maybe I need to look closer at this. And so I did. And that jolt was all I needed to actually get into the Bible and actually study the issue deeper than, what, than the little comfortable answer that I had been believing for a long time. I mean, my system was all nice and neat, and I realized, what do you know, Dr. Toussaint was right, as I studied the Word even closer. And I realized that my motive for hearing other Bible teachers often boiled down to evaluating them, not to opening myself to being taught. That's a hard thing to confess, and it's honestly something that I still struggle with, and I guess all of us in similar trades evaluate those in similar trades uh, similarly, I guess. And uh, so it's, it's sort of a, 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 an occupational hazard. But still, I would often merely listen to affirm my own biases. And when we go to church, maybe ask yourself, if you do that, that when you come, are you listening just basically to hear your biases affirmed? Or do you open yourself up and say, Lord, teach me what you want me to learn? And a teachable heart did something very crazy in my life. 
it allowed me to learn. And I would not have had that if Dr. Toussaint hadn't uh, basically said something that totally shocked me. And it's not a big, big deal, but uh, it's, uh, it was big enough to show me a blind spot in my heart. Let's look together at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And I'd like us to walk through this chapter as we talk about following God's plan through closed doors. I don't know about you, but God's plan has often led me to closed doors. You think you got everything all dialed in in your life and in your plan for your life, and then all of a sudden you get to the next doorknob and it's locked. And you think, well, Lord, that's not supposed to happen. So you immediately begin to evaluate, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I need to read the right scripture, pray the right prayer, or I need to you know, repent of some sin or something because doorknobs are there to be turned. They're not there to be locked in, in as far as the will of God goes. At least that's what we think. It's helpful to look at Acts chapter 16 and realize that even the Apostle Paul came up against locked doors. And these locked doors didn't just serve to stop Paul, they served to redirect him into what God wanted. And that's helpful because we tend to approach doors assuming it should be unlocked. And we usually, I don't know if you've noticed, but we go to the doors we want to open. We don't go to the doors we don't want to open. <laughs> we go to the doors we want to open. And when they're locked, it gives us a theological challenge. It gives us a maturity challenge. It gives us a blind spot challenge. Well, in Acts chapter 16, Paul begins his second missionary journey, or he began it actually at the end of chapter 15. But we're going to start in chapter 16. Um, the first five verses or so, we'll just summarize them. He goes through and sort of retraces his steps from the first journey. And when he goes back through Lystra, he picks up a disciple there named Timothy, begins to follow with Paul and become a, a protege, really a disciple of Paul for the rest of Paul's life. And, uh, I mean, it's just home run after home run. If you read the verses that follow here, it's just boom. You know, verse 4, they're passing through the cities, they're delivering the decrees. Verse 5, the churches are being strengthened in the faith. They're increasing in number daily. I mean, it's one open door after the other. And then verse 6. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the geography of Asia Minor or modern Turkey today, but basically, if you think of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, that big bunch of land on top of the Mediterranean Sea is Turkey. And Paul was going, starting from the area of Tarsus, this is from your perspective, and heading west. And it's going west along the coast, and then he wanted to keep going straight all the way to Ephesus, to the coast. But the Lord stopped him. He wanted to go into Asia, but the Lord stopped him. So they started going north into the area of Bithynia, close to where Istanbul is today. And the Lord stopped him, so they couldn't go north. So then they started going west again, and they came to the coast 
at Troas. And when they were at Troas, we read in uh, verse 8, Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So one locked door after another, and then all of a sudden Paul has this vision, and the reason is clear. Those locked doors were redirection to get Paul to go to Troas, and from Troas they set out to sea and headed west across uh, the sea there to get to Europe, really, or to get to Macedonia. And when Paul and his companions landed at Neapolis, which is what's, me what's mentioned here, um, it says in verse 11, So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. Neapolis is modern Kavala in Greece, and it's a beautiful port city. You can go there and still see the ancient port where the Apostle Paul pulled in. And when Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke first set foot on the ground there at Kavala or Neapolis, the gospel touched Europe for the very first time. And so God's gospel moved, the gospel of Christ moved from Asia, Asia Minor, now into Europe. And as we'll read, the text goes on, but as we'll read, people begin to be saved as a result of this. And we read that and think, you know what, that's great. But what about Asia and Bithynia? Doesn't God want them saved too? Why did God shut the door on these places that need the gospel just as much as Europe? Well, it all proved simply a matter of timing. Because the doors would blow wide open for each of these men to a man to go back to uh, Asia in years to come. Let me give you an example. Timothy would serve as the pastor of Ephesus, which is Asia, which is like the major city in Asia. Paul would travel to Asia on his third missionary journey. He would even, even live in Ephesus for a few years. And from his house arrest in Rome, Paul would write the book of Ephesians to the church in Asia, in Ephesus. And then Silas, this one is kind of fun. Silas, or Silvanus, would actually serve as Peter's secretary, or the one that, that wrote Peter's epistles, and then would deliver those books to the area of, um, of Asia. So each one of these men got to go back and go to Asia, even though at the time, God slammed the door. And the reasons for the closed door in the past became very clear. God wanted the gospel in Asia and Bithynia, absolutely, but he wanted it in Europe first. We get a principle from this, this text that's helpful in our lives, and in that the Lord reveals his will in our lives just as much by slamming doors as he does by opening doors. And I don't know about you, but he slams a lot of doors. In, in my life, and he, and he probably does in yours as well. 
Part of God showing us the direction to go includes showing us the direction not to go. And there's a lot more directions not to go than there is the direction to go, which can feel frustrating when after year after year, God continues to bring you up to locked doors. But all he's doing is simply showing you all the directions not to go so that the direction to go will be patently clear. And it's challenging because emotions are pretty strong. And when we feel stuck in a certain spot and we feel like this is never going to change, we can get to the point to where we realize that, or, or we fail to realize that God's story in our life is revealed chapter by chapter, just like reading a book. You know, how would you like to read a novel halfway through and then just stop right there and say, okay, well, this is just, this is it. This is how it ends. It's not how it ends. You're only halfway through. You've read only chapters one through five. You still got chapters six through 10 to read. And we tend to evaluate the quality of God's love in our lives. And we tend to evaluate our lives in general by the way they are now. But we're only in chapter five. God's got more chapters to write. He's got more chapters to write. And by the way, things don't usually all come together until the end. And um, that's often how God works. So the godly passions that we have in life are likely going to bump up against closed doors, whether it's a passion for ministry, whether it's reconciliation with somebody, whether it's repentance, whether it's employment, anything that God has revealed in his word as his will is likely going to bump up against closed doors. So I've written down a few truths that I've discovered from the text and also from life that you might find helpful. And I don't know that, that uh, you'll need to write them down, but just sort of let them work their way through your heart. And here's the first one. A closed door now doesn't mean a closed door forever. But emotionally, we like to think it does. A closed door now doesn't mean a closed door forever. Also, locked doors don't always reflect personal defeat, wrong goals, or misplaced passions. You know, we come up against a locked door and we think, well, the reason this door is locked is because I've done something wrong in my past. Or the reason this door is locked is because this is a wrong goal. I shouldn't be trying to go this direction. Or maybe it's a passion that's misplaced. But let me ask you, was Paul desiring to share the gospel in Asia a misplaced passion? Absolutely not. This was Christ's clear will that the gospel be shared. It just wasn't his timing. So if the Lord closes something that seems to be his will in your life, don't give up. Remember what Jesus said, keep knocking, keep praying. Because when you knock, the door is opened. When you seek, you will find. And you may find that one day that door is unlocked, just like Paul did when he went to this area. Well, let's continue verse 11 as we work our way through this chapter. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. 
and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So notice the details. It says that they chose a strategic day, the Sabbath, and a strategic location where they expected to find a place of prayer. And to specific people, they spoke to the women who had gathered there. Women. Where were the men? Where were the men? I remember once at a family gathering, I asked my sister-in-law, I said, where are the men? At the family gathering, she said, there are none. So, and sometimes you feel that way in the church because the women are, seem so much more spiritual. Why do women seem so much more spiritual than men? Harry, don't answer that. Don't answer that. But it, it seems true. It only takes 10 men to create a Jewish synagogue. And evidently, there weren't even 10 men in Philippi to create a synagogue. So these ladies, in order to find a, a place of prayer that they could count on each week, there wasn't a synagogue to go to, so they went outside the city to, to a riverside, and they were praying there. In fact, you can go to Philippi today and go to the outside the city wall. We know where the city wall is, and the river still flows. And so there's an area right outside that city wall where Paul probably had this conversation or this, this encounter with these women who had assembled. Well, look at verse 14 at what happened. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia shows us, Lydia shows us, or I guess the text shows us about Lydia, that we can have the best strategies. They chose the strategic city, strategic day, strategic place. But when it gets right down to it, it is the Lord who changes lives. Verse 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The strategy, we can have all the great strategy in the world, but not one word we say is going to make a bit of permanent change without God opening hearts. And that's why we should pray with that in mind. God opened their hearts. That person that you're wanting to come to Christ is someone, obviously, that we pray for. Because it takes God opening their eyes to see Satan has blinded their eyes. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. It takes God opening their eyes so they can see the truth, the, the truth of the beauty of the gospel, and then they will believe. And that's exactly what happened to Lydia. Ultimately, it's not about having the right words or the right answers. It's about praying that God opens their heart to the words of the simple gospel. God is the wonderful chisel for the hard heart. You know that person that you want to change? It's not you, of course. 
that that person you want to change, God has to change them. Your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your pastor, your whatever, God has to change them. God alone causes the change. Lydia, she was the first convert in all of Europe. Lydia, this dear woman from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was a challenge for uh, religious people. If you look at the history of that place, it was a city of merchants, and it makes sense. She was a seller of purple fabrics. But there were guilds there that basically required you to worship Apollo and to go to um, social events that were centered around Apollo that were also immoral. And so basically you had to choose between Jesus and your job. And it's possible that's why Lydia left there. Just total guess, but that's the way, that's the way it was in Thyatira. And here this, this Gentile convert to Judaism, she was a worshiper of God, we're told, and that's what that means. She was listening, and God had her heart prepared to hear Paul's words. It was a divine moment, and God opened her heart to respond. And that's what we need to pray as well, and even pray for ourselves. Lord, open my heart to respond to you. Lydia probably had some money because she invited them into her house and her, her whole household invited them to come and stay, these missionaries. Now, keep your finger here, if you would, and turn to the book of Philippians. Remember, they're in Philippi, and Paul, later writing to Philippi, would remember their early generosity. Philippians Chapter 1, Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So Lydia would have heard these words. She is there in Philippi. She would have heard these words, and she would have thought back to that time by the river where Paul, a total stranger, shows up and shares the gospel. And in Paul's words here, he says that he, he thanks that church for their participation in the gospel. In other words, for their giving money, for their supporting the work of ministry from the first day until now. So that first day is what we read about here in Acts 16. And then he uses that first day to also give some more encouragement where he says in verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you on that first day will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. Philippians, yeah, Philippians 4, 15. 
Again, Paul refers to their generosity, and he says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So turn back to Acts 16. So Lydia would have read these words, and she was part of those early day gifts. The Philippian church modeled that from day one, when God opens our hearts to respond, to receive his love, he also opens our hearts to give love back. Or when he opens our hearts to receive the grace of God, he also opens our hearts to give. In their case, it was to give money and hospitality. In our situation, it's the same and even more. But when we look, think about Lydia, just remember that we can't force what God has yet to change in another person. Sometimes he takes a long time with other people. He's taken a long time with you. And he takes a long time with me, hasn't he? Paul would later write, Apollos watered, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. It's a helpful thing to remember. So Acts 16, now verse 16. It happened as we were going to a place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. So they're in Philippi, and they're going to the place of prayer, so they're headed back out to the river, and this slave girl, and we're told that she has a spirit of divination. Does anybody else have a different translation than spirit of divination? Spirit that enabled her to tell the future. Okay, John, anybody else? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a translation, and it's not, it's not just that, it's more of an interpretation. The literal language you may have in your margin is she had a spirit of python. Python, which may, means nothing to us until we realize that the python in the Greek mindset the python was a, um, in the city of Delphi, there was the primary Greek oracle, the, the means of supernatural knowledge, was in Delphi that this large python that Apollo had supposedly conquered, and now the, the oracle for all of the world, the main oracle, was there in Delphi, Greece. And so to say that this, this young girl had a spirit of python within her, means that there is sort of a, a satellite, you know, a satellite option of, of talking to the, the, uh, the oracle in Delphi. And that Paul drove the demon out shows the source of this supernatural knowledge. It's satanic, which gives us a big clue about fortune tellers and stuff today as well. But what's helpful about this is that immediately, we're told, immediately, when Paul casts out the demon, boom, 
the source of fortune telling is gone. It's totally gone. And of course, how you think the people are going to respond to that. Oh, we're so glad. We're so, thank you so much for delivering her from this spirit that has made us lots of money. No, look what happened. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the concern of the owners of the slave girl was the city was in an uproar, not because uh, Paul had driven out this demon, but because Paul had taken their means of making money. And there's only two times in the book of Acts that Gentiles get oppose Paul. Most of the time, it's Jews who oppose Paul. Only two times, it, 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 Gentiles oppose Paul, and in both cases, it was because of what? Money, exactly. Here in uh, Philippi and also in Ephesus. Remember when Paul was saying God's made, you know, Artemis is not a god, and they were selling little Artemis statues, you know, so their, their means of making money suddenly took a nosedive. So they throw Paul and Silas, and they trump up these false allegations saying, verse 20, they're throwing our city into confusion. They're Jews. And, of course, us Romans, it, it, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, have to hear these customs. It's not lawful for us to accept these customs. And the crowd uh, uh, basically begins to beat them. And so they put him in prison. But notice what happens. Verse 25. Paul and Silas, what do they do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So if you had been beaten unjustly and stuck in prison, would you be singing hymns? <laughs> maybe, maybe some of us would. But it's amazing to see here Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And I love that Luke adds, and the prisoners were listening to them. These guys are different, really different. And as we're going to see here in a minute, it's not just the prisoners who were listening to them, but the jailer also would have been powerfully affected by it. They were joyful, which incidentally is a major theme of the book of Philippians, of joy in the Lord. Well, the earthquake wakes up Mr. Jailer, and the jailer rushes in and figures three things. Number one, 
Prison doors are all unlocked. Number two, everyone must have escaped, especially the two I was supposed to keep my eye on. And then three, there's no reason to live because I'll be put to death in the morning for my negligence. Well, Paul immediately stops him, urges him that everything is okay, and then look at the unusual reaction of the jailer. Verse 29, he called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Picture that. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Such irony here. Here you have the jailer, and you have Paul and Silas, who were the ones in jail. And the one who was free came to the ones who were truly free and bowed down before them and said, what must I do to be saved? And what a magnificent answer. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to quit cussing. You don't have to quit smoking. You don't have to change the way you're living. Just believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So often we get the cart before the horse, don't we? And we put on unbelievers the burden that we ourselves as believers can't bear. And that is trying to change our own lives before we come to Christ. First things first, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the process of sanctification goes on and the Lord will help you with all these other areas of your life that need changing. But don't think you've got to clean your life up before you come to Jesus or you will never come to Jesus. Just believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because it's your sins that separate you and me from a God of holiness. And if our sins are now taken away, there's nothing between us and God. All we've got to do is believe it. Believe that his gift paid for our sins and our sins are forgiven. The jailer believed it. He and his whole household believed it. And they took Paul and Silas into their house washed their wounds, fed them food, and then took them back to jail. (laughs) But notice what happens now, verse 35. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, They've beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Why did Paul do this? Paul wasn't trying to save face. You know, first of all, he says, by the way, we're not just Jews, we're Romans, and it's illegal what you've done to us. 
And of course, then the magistrates are all afraid because they realize, oh no, we've broken the law. And, but Paul says, look, bring us out and you bring us out yourself. Why did he do that? He wasn't just trying to save face. In fact, I don't think he was trying to save face. It seems much more that Paul realizes that he had just planted a church in Philippi. It's not open season on Christians in Philippi. But if you're going to do, do certain things, you've got to remain lawful. And so Paul says, look, give us, treat us as our rights deserve. We, this was unjust. This shouldn't have been done. And so he basically sets a precedent that you can't mistreat the Christians in this city. And uh, then Paul, of course, departs, and God uses that to spread the gospel even farther. Now, you might be in, you probably did leave Philippians 1, so turn back, if you would, to Philippians. And let's look at one more place in this book that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Not just that Lydia would have heard, but that the jailer would have heard. Because Lydia and her household and the jailer and his household are among the first converts in Europe, and they would have had particular affection for the book of Philippians as they heard it read to them. So, Philippians 1, verse 12. Philippians 1, 12. Now imagine you're the jailer, Philippian jailer, who hears these words being read. I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has, caused, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul says that my imprisonment has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Was that the case? Not only he's writing from Rome, but that was the case also in Philippi, wasn't it? Paul was imprisoned, and yet it was because of his imprisonment that the gospel spread. The jailer came to Christ. So when the jailer would have read these words, he would have thought, man, Paul's at it again. Now he's imprisoned in Rome and doing the same things that he did here in Philippi and he would have had great courage. And we can take great courage from that because we're going to face situations where it seems like we're shackled. If we were to take the time to look at the very end of the book of Acts, we'd see Paul in his first Roman imprisonment is imprisoned in Rome. It says that he's there, and he, uh, but the gospel is not hindered. He kept preaching the word, and he is unhindered. He's, Paul is jailed but the word of God is unhindered. How important it is for us to remember, as we heard so well earlier this morning, that it is in our weaknesses, it is in our inabilities, that God shows himself strong. God gets the glory in circumstances like that, doesn't he? And that's important to remember when you are imprisoned. Well, one more stop here. Let's look ahead a little bit in chapter 17. And we'll skip the part here in Thessalonica. Paul goes to Thessalonica, same song, second verse. People come to Christ, and the Jews run him out of town. But we get to verse 10 now, and we see something different that's really pretty neat. Acts 17, verse 10. 
The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Berea. You can still go to Berea today, and there is a small little Jewish quarter that's still there. Um, Before 1943, in this Jewish quarter, there were 850 Jews that lived there. But, of course, you can probably tell where it's going. Before 1943, they lived there, but then the Nazis round them up and deported most of them and killed most of them. But there is a, an ancient synagogue that's still there that's traditionally over the synagogue from Paul's day. And Paul goes to Berea, to this synagogue, and we're told that the Bereans heard what Paul said, but they didn't just take it because Paul said it. They took his words and then they evaluated, they went to the scriptures. Kind of like what I did with Dr. Two Saints' heresy that he taught that day in class, that I had to go figure out, oh, he's right. And that's exactly what they did. They took Paul's words and said, hmm, what's the Bible say about that? And they go and they examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. But notice the very next verse, therefore, many of them believed. When you examine the scriptures carefully to see if Jesus is the Christ, you're going to see that he is. And if the scriptures are your means of truth, then, of course, you're going to respond as we should and believe. Our world today is often, especially our country, the United States is very much like this, but our world is like this. We are a product of reason. You've probably heard of the age of the Enlightenment. That's sort of something we learned in history, but not real sure exactly where it fits. But it was ground zero for the founding of our country. Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Many of these um, deists were products of the Enlightenment. Thomas Paine wrote his Age of Reason, and it basically challenged people to say, look, evaluate God's Word, or evaluate everything in life. And if it doesn't meet with your reason, then abandon it, which is why Thomas Jefferson would read the Gospels with a pair of scissors. He'd read the gospel with a pair of scissors, and if he'd, he'd cut out all the miracles because he didn't hold to miracles. His reason was, was the higher standard than Scripture. The Bereans, it was just the opposite. If they heard something, they went to the Scriptures, and they understood that God operates on a higher level than our brains. His truth is in His Word. Truth about God comes from the Word of God. When the uh, reformers during the Protestant Reformation had, remember, they had all those solas, sola fide, meaning faith only, and then sola scriptura, which which means scripture only, but that, that particular sola doesn't mean that the scripture is our only source of truth, but rather it is our final authority, if anything contradicts it. We have other sources of truth. I mean, all truth is God's truth. Science, when it's true, is God's truth. The creation around us, Romans 1 tells us, tells us of the in, in, invisible attributes of God. We can see truth about God with ever, 
without ever cracking the Bible. But the revelation, the natural revelation around us doesn't tell us anything about the sin in our heart and its remedy. Only the holy word of God tells us about that. And so sola scriptura doesn't mean that the scripture is our only authority. It means it's our final authority, that everything boils down to the Bible. And when the Bereans heard Paul's words, it says, sounds good, Paul, but what does the Bible say about that? And they examined the scriptures, and therefore they believed, because the scriptures affirm exactly what Paul was saying. It's important to remember not to believe everything you think. <laughs> Have you noticed how much when you think something, you think it's true? Because you feel it so deeply. It's helpful to evaluate that. What does the Bible say about what I think? Don't believe everything you think, because your feelings and your thoughts can lead you astray, big time lead you astray. When God created humanity millennia ago, he knew that we would need a guide to help us through our feelings, our emotions, the deceptions of Satan, and the maze of everything that this world offers us. That guide is the Bible. That, God is his, that guide is his word. So evaluate everything you hear based on the scriptures. Your thoughts evaluated through the scriptures. Your pastor's message evaluated through the scriptures. Your Sunday school teachers evaluated through the scriptures. Your own emotions, what does the Bible say? You should always ask that question, what does the Bible say? The Bereans looked at the Bible daily, and therefore they believed. And they are called more noble-minded than the others. And for us, that's exactly the truth as well. So Acts 16 and 17 here take us through this wonderful journey of following God's plan through closed doors and open hearts. And in our lives, we're going to come up against these exact same situations in principle. And the solutions are also the same. That we hold our, our will with an open hand and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. If you don't want this door open, I'll go try another door. If you want me to stand here and keep knocking, I'll wait and keep knocking until you open this door. But we, we're trusting God, God and his timing. When we're waiting for someone else's heart to change, again, an open hand. Lord, it's your timing. It's your will. It's your word. When someone teaches us something or tells us something, then we take that and we hold it with an open hand until we can evaluate it with the word of God and say, yes, I believe that, or no, that's wrong. But again, we're always coming back to the Lord God as our standard, as our guide, and as the one that we trust when, when the world screams so many other different things. Now, we've got a few minutes. I wonder if there's any questions, either practically or even impractically, about what we've Discussed? Lanny wants to know what the heresy was that Dr. Toussaint taught. Well, it was from Acts chapter 16 that uh, we're in the parable that Jesus told, and uh, Dr. Toussaint says that this parable teaches that we have a temporary body when we get to heaven. And prior to that day, I had always thought 
we die and we go to heaven and we're just sort of spirits floating around until the resurrection when our spirit comes back into our body. But the Bible in more than one place, I come to find out, actually shows we do have a temporary body in heaven, which shows that God never intended our spirit to be disembodied ever in any course of our existence. So, so that was new to me. All right, good, what, good question. What did the other prisoners? What did the other prisoners do when Paul and Silas went to the jailer's house for rest and recuperation? Well, we aren't told, <laughs> so we don't know. But uh, more than likely, if you were the jailer, what would you do? Let's just ask it that way. He probably locked him back up, but who knows? Maybe they all went over and had a potluck or something. <laughs> all right, any, anything else? Let's get a microphone to you right here. I just wondered um, if you thought Magog was, or Turkey was Magog. Is that how you see it? The Gog and Magog of, yeah. of Revelation? Yeah. Oh, my dear sister. <laughs> From what I remember back in the back, back, back of my head, I don't remember that Gog and Magog are even conclusive as to where they are. They typically are described as coming from the north, but the challenge is, from, from Israel's perspective, everything's from the north. And so it's kind of like, where do you put it? So I don't know is probably the best way to say that, but, but what I remember is it isn't conclusive. So. John, I think we had another over here. So. Uh, yes, this might be rather difficult. Uh, I was a lifelong Methodist until about 15 years ago, and I've been following closely what's going on with the Methodist Church right now, the split and all that. And your uh, teaching on the different groups examining the scriptures and to get the truth, How, what is your thought, and I've been watching too many videos about the Methodist Church lately, I think, but anyway, um, what are your thoughts on how the same groups of people who have gone through years in the same church with the same teachings come up with such variance in, in thought on specific laws of God that would cause that such a rift? I mean... <clears throat> How can you account for so many people reading the Bible and then totally misinterpreting it, or in my view, misinterpreting it? Uh, just wonder what your thoughts are. So is your question on the issue of which they split, or is your, or is your question the issue of how can so many people have so many different interpretations? No, the, no it's the bigger, question, the bigger question of how so many people can read the same scriptures and have completely different views on it. I, and all, both seem to put forward these really what sounds like clear rationale and how they interpret it. Right. But it's kind of a mystery to me. It is, it is a mystery. And, um, it, you know, it's sort of like saying, how can so many people have different views of green bean casserole? <laughs> we all approach it from, from a background of uh, predis predisposition, and 
and, and prejudiced and, and history of growing up. Um, and also just a limited understanding. I mean, I had no idea about the, the body issue prior to Dr. Toussaint mentioning that, and it spurred me to go deeper into the word that showed that it was true. But so there's always going to be a variety of things like that. And Paul even, I'm trying to remember where he said it. I think he said it to the Corinthian church because they had lots of divisions. But he said to them, divisions are good because it shows basically it helps those who are the cream of the crop to rise. So divisions are helpful because it allows the truth to remain true. And everybody else is going to run off and just do their own thing. The challenge is, who's the true in all that? And that's when, once again, we've got to go back to the Word and examine the Word because meaning is with the author. Meaning is not with the recipient. If I write you a note and say, hey, let's go to Jason's Deli after church, you wouldn't go to, you know, some pizza place. You would understand that I meant Jason's Deli. But the, the meaning lies with the author, not with the reader. So you can't interpret my note any way you want to. You've got to interpret the way... I meant it. And so when we come to the scriptures and our challenge is what did God mean? Not here's what I think it means or here's what it means to me. What it means to me is irrelevant. What did it mean to God? So that doesn't solve your problem that you're describing, but it maybe it maybe it addresses some of it. So it's a really good question. All right, maybe one more and then we'll have to stop. I think some of it also involves the tickling of ears, you know, that they talk about, or that the scriptures talk about, that in churches, I, I think especially now in our own day, the world culture is coming in so much so that we blind ourselves to what is true within the scripture, and we want to hear what we want to hear. Exactly. And there are many ministers that will preach to us exactly what it is we want to hear, rather than what is true, because they want to continue to preach. Hmm. So if this lady is talking about little divisions that happen where, you know, Christ tells us, you know, don't bother yourselves with, you know, all of this small stuff, you know, it is really the meat that we're looking at, you know, not, not these little issues of disagreement. But if it is something that is truly scriptural, that the world culture has taken over and is trying to remove truth from us, that I think we do have to stand up against. Absolutely. We, we go right to the mat for those things. But it takes a lot of wisdom to uh, decide what the big issues are. You know, is it, is it uh, choir robes versus, you know, no. But is it the deity of Christ? Yeah. So these, these are things that the Orthodox Church all throughout history has consistently proclaimed certain truths. Those things are not going to change, but the, the means by which we proclaim those truths can change. So, but yeah, you're exactly right. Tickling the itching ears, as uh, Paul writes to Timothy, is definitely something that we have to always be aware of, even in our own hearts. It's not just those out there, it's us, us in here. All right, good, good questions. Okay, all right, we'll let one more squeak in. Yeah, I hope this is a quick question. So when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Was he thinking spiritual salvation or maybe a s physical, like not being executed the next day? That's a good question. Um, I think, it, well, not I think, but based on what Paul and Silas answered, it was a spiritual salvation. 
because he responded to that. He didn't say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. He responded to that. He believed. Plus, that's probably not what he was asking because he just saw Paul and Silas are alive. So problem solved. I'm not going to be killed. So it was a spiritual question. That, that's, that's what the context seems to indicate pretty clearly. So really good. Good question. All right, let's pray together. Father, we need your guidance uh, so desperately in our lives. We have emotions, we have the world's words and agenda, and of course we have our adversary, the devil, who is the father of lies, who comes up and contradicts your word every chance he can get to muddy the water and cause confusion and to just bring havoc both in our hearts as well as in the gospel and in the church. Give us a, a, a commitment to the Bible that we will not let go of, that even in the depths of our thoughts, we will evaluate our thinking based on Scripture, much less the words of others. Let the, the Word of God be our ultimate and final authority, just as it was with Paul. And as we follow you through this life, come up against locked doors or come up against locked hearts of others. Give us the the patience of faith as we trust you to, to unlock those doors, to unlock those hearts in your timing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Great lesson. I hope you all have a blessed week. Until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.